Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Aaron, and with me for this Donor Pick episode is my regular co-host and best friend, Patrick. Hello, everyone. And also the man that I would love to overthrow a government with, if it ever came to that. Um, I would be your wingman on that one. Wait, what? My wingman? Why don't I be your wingman? You lead the charge. I can do that. Okay. I can do that. If I have an epic beard like Curtis does, then I could do it. Ooh, but I have the beard. Yeah. See, this is where we have conflict. In you need to case, be a drug addict. Okay. You know, whatever works, man. An anarchist. If I can can open doors and speak weird languages that can't be understood half the time, then yeah, I love that. (laughs) Well, before we get to spoilers, maybe we should stop. This month's (laughs) theme was movies that were based on a comic or graphic novel to tie in with a certain incredibly anticipated comic book film that is literally opening right now as we record. It's opening night for Avengers Endgame. And we are stoked that our patrons chose a movie starring Captain America himself for us to discuss. Of course, I'm talking about Snowpiercer's Curtis, who, though also a leader, is very different than his Marvel's Steve Rogers counterpart. Or is he? I guess you'll find out what we think very soon. If you'd like to participate in voting to choose these monthly donor pick episodes and also receive access to cool monthly bonus content, like our top five Heroines Who Kick-Ass bonus episode that is available now, you can visit patreon.com slash film to become a supporter. And with that said, now I'm going to give you the spoiler warning before we reveal any more of Snowpiercer's plot through our fun little banter like we did there early in the episode. Uh, if you haven't seen this movie, check it out. The good news is it hits Netflix again on May the 1st. So literally just a couple days after we post this episode, it will be back. And you can watch it. You can come back and hear this conversation. It's a really good movie with some great themes, great sci-fi ideas to explore. And we think it's well worth watching and then hearing this discussion because I'm pretty sure it's going to be a good one. So don't listen until you see the movie. You don't want to be spoiled. There are some cool surprises that you want to discover for yourself. All right, Patrick, now it's one word takeaway time to get us started, and I would love it if you would take us away and go first. Well, I was going to say awesome because I loved this movie. This was the first time watch for me, and I didn't know what to expect because every time I mentioned this is going to be a first time watch, you're going to be like, mm-hmm, okay. And I'm like, is this going to be like one of those, it's a horror movie, but you're not telling me it's a horror movie? Thankfully, it was not. It turned into what I consider probably one of now my favorite dystopian sci-fi movies of all time. Like, I was just so enthralled with it. But the one word that I could sum up this movie with is the word grit, gritty, grittiness, the base being grit. And really, it comes down to the personality of Curtis and his team, like the culture they come from that can only be described as gritty. I love that this is a story of survival and battling and will to overcome through the lens of the blue-collar, lower-class citizen, some with missing appendages. (laughs) Putting that against the backdrop of a cold steel train surrounded by the dead earth makes me feel the cold discomfort that these guys are feeling. I'm actually confined with these guys, anxious to bust out in some way. And it's the grittiness that Curtis... And his guys are surrounded with, and it's that grittiness that ultimately leads 
to the end of his story for better or for worse. Well, I love it. It's a great Wormwood takeaway, and I'm super excited that you enjoyed this one. It's always the nerve-wrecking, you know. It's not like we had a choice. The listeners picked this one, so you couldn't be mad at me. You would have had to be mad at a lot of listeners, but it's always great when something surprises you on a first-time watch, and and then we get to talk about it. Um, At its core, though, it really is a horror movie. Maybe not in terms of what we think of as the way that horror movies generally play out, but it's pretty horrific when you think about what is going on in this world. It's equally sci-fi, it's equally dystopian, it's equally post-apocalyptic, and I think that's probably one thing that draws you and I both to this, is Absolutely, how it's a yeah. mixture. It all it reminds me of Sunshine, to be honest. Um, Danny Boyle's great sci-fi flick that we both really enjoy as well. Also, starring Chris Evans. I mean, there's a common theme going on here. <laughs> Maybe it's our man crush that we didn't know about with Chris Evans. Absolutely. And just wait until you see Avengers Endgame. Okay. Enough of the tease. I will go with my one word takeaway. And for me, Patrick, I went with the word revolting. Now, I chose this word for two reasons. One is because this film is all about revolt. Uh, interestingly enough, another one of our choices in this month's final five for voting was also uh, a revolt film in V for Vendetta. Snowpiercer is great sci-fi because once you get past believing that the world could kind of accidentally be frozen over... Honestly, it's not something I necessarily put past us trying to do this. It becomes a realistic seeming exploration of how the remaining populace might truly handle that kind of tragedy. Watching this revolution fight its way to the top of the train to end oppression while learning the reasons behind how the other side thinks was really intriguing to me. And it's oftentimes highly entertaining as well. But much of what we saw was also revolting in how far humanity had escaped people in just 17 years, leading them to some of the awful actions that we see take place on the train. Um, and honestly, it's a, a bit stomach churning in a couple of moments in the film, not to the point where you have to turn away, but to the point where it makes you nauseous to think of humans doing certain things to other humans. So I think it makes for a great film that is both fun to watch and also extremely contemplative in that how would I handle this if I was there kind of way. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's good stuff, and I'm really glad you enjoyed it too. Well, one of the primary themes in the film is really what I think it's all built on. Uh, the story about a train which operates in a class ecosystem The people in the back of the train are poor and support the more extravagant, comfortable lives of the people in the front of the train. As explained by Minister Mason, played by the steam-stealing Tilda Swinton in her epic speech, the passengers all have a preordained place in keeping the train going. And as we kind of get into this discussion about this ecosystem and what it means, I'd like to kick us off by just playing this speech because I absolutely love it and I just want to hear it again too. So here you go, listeners. If you haven't heard it in a while, here it is. Be a shoe. Seven minutes allotted for your speech, sir. This is so disappointing. It's too No, no, we don't need all that. I've only got seven minutes. 
soldiers. This is not you. This is disorder. This is size 10 chaos. This, see this? This is death. In this locomotive we call home, there is one thing that between our worn hearts and the bitter cold. Clothing? Shields? No. Order. Order is the barrier that holds back the frozen death. We must, all of us, on this train of life, remain in our allotted station. We must, each of us, occupy our preordained particular position. Would you wear a shoe on your head? Of course you wouldn't wear a shoe on your head. A shoe doesn't belong on your head. A shoe belongs on your foot. A hat belongs on your head. I am a hat. You are a shoe. I belong on the head. You belong on the foot. Yes? So it is. In the beginning, order was prescribed by your ticket. First class, economy, and frail orders like you. Eternal order is prescribed by the sacred engine. All things flow from the sacred engine. All things in their place. All passengers in their section. All water flowing, all heat rising pays homage to the sacred engine. In its own particular preordained position. So it is. Now, as in the beginning, I belong to the front. You belong to the tail. When the foot seeks the place of the head, a sacred line is crossed. Know your place. Keep your place. Be a shoe. All right. Well, I, <laughs> I love that speech so much. I just think she is the definition of truly chewing up scenery in this moment. And she really does have like this incredible gravitas about her when she's making this speech and really all throughout the film. Uh, she just kind of takes your attention away from everything else around her. Um, she's pretty incredible. Yeah, I think she represents what I felt watching the movie, which is this sense of reality being punched in the face with fantasy because it seemed like there were some surreal moments like there's a sequence during one of the fights with the faceless guards with the axes that just seems so matter of fact and then you see at one point everybody stops to wish each other a happy new year as they cross the bridge and it's moments like that that just made me go wow what am i watching here but it's personified in how she is how she looks how she acts. And I think that she represents really this kind of new culture of train life that we're not really familiar with, but we're sort of getting used to as we watch this narrative play out. Well, let me ask you this question first, then, as we get started here. Would you wear a shoe on your head, Patrick? Absolutely <laughs> not. I'm not a shoe guy. I'm a hat guy. And, you know, if, if it was a shoe, it would have to be a high top. Potentially well, maybe a basketball shoe. Not a croc? Not a croc. You know, crocs <laughs> crocs are for feet only. Crocs are not for anything. Correction, sir. We can we can just <laughs> table that discussion for another day. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you will not cross that sacred line. Okay. Well, I wanted to find out from you here, 
How did you feel watching Curtis and Gilliam lead this revolt to overthrow the system that oppressed them? And this is kind of a series of questions for us to talk through here. Did, did you agree with what they were doing? And do you think that there's any bit of justification in the extremely segmented class system that has been created to help keep this train going for 17 years? Well, it goes back to thinking about the train itself and why it was created. Uh, the Some of the title card text said that the lone survivors boarded this train and as a result those that were poor got moved to the back and those you know the, you know in terms of more rich types they moved to the, the front what i think is interesting is that it doesn't matter what the space is it doesn't matter where it takes place or what the situation is class systems will emerge because we are inherently selfish people and when you have an economy driven by supply and demand, then you have classes that could come out of that. So because we start the movie, start the story from the back of the train, as an audience, we're invited to be a part of this group of ragtag, blue-collar, poor people, lower-class folks. So in one sense, I'm absolutely feeling like what he was doing was justified. Yes, it's not right for poor people to be oppressed. Everybody needs to have an equal share. But at the same time, as you walk through, literally and figuratively, through this train, and you start seeing people of different kinds of classes and backgrounds, you start to understand the justification that Minister Mason is preaching about that the fact is we have to maintain balance. There's a great scene where they're eating sushi and she says, we only eat sushi twice a year because this is a closed system. This isn't something that we have to, we can just let the population of the fish just get out of control. We have to eat them twice a year, January and July. And how that's framed as a delicacy it really becomes a metaphor for how the folks in the back of the train are used. They become resources at that point as a means to keep the train going, as a means to keep the population in control. So in that regard, I believe in that philosophy, not to kill people, but in the value of a balanced ecosystem. But when you put humanity at the center of that, that's when things get really, really sketchy. And I think that's where the great philosophical discussion comes in with regards to this narrative and that we have, we're kind of wrestling with that. Fundamentally, we agree you can't have too much of something because it either diminishes everything else or it overpopulates or whatever. We do this with animals. We've done it with fish. But when it comes to humans, now we're thinking something different. And in a lot of ways, our minds shift a little bit, as we at least mine did, when we go through the train because we realize – Maybe people are expendable. Maybe it's for the greater good, for the survival of humanity, that these people are sacrificed in some way. So it left me conflicted, and it left me thinking about it, and I think that's why I enjoyed it and why I want to kind of watch it again with all that in mind because I kind of feel both. I feel more, by the end of the movie, I feel more 
behind uh, behind Curtis, but there's still a piece of me that's like, but maybe not. Yeah, you know, I love that you brought up the sushi scene because it really is, I think, a great metaphor for the train ecosystem that has been set up, which in a way is sort of metaphorical itself. Um, but it's it really it really does allude to that with the idea of limiting a resource intentionally and not enjoying it to its full potential because ultimately you will then run out of it. And so to keep it going, it makes sense. And I think that's what makes this so compelling is that Wilfred is right. Like they are absolutely 100% correct from a scientific, you know, calculating, doing the math standpoint, humanity will not survive unless there is a very controlled manner of the way that babies are born and you know, look at the world today. We're in a world where we are incredibly overpopulating this planet. And what is the solution in a lot of people's minds? We have abortion now. And not to get off onto a, a big tangent and social justice conversation about that, but the fact of the matter is that that keeps new life from being brought into the world. Um, China has laws that dictate how many kids can be born in the country for, for some of these very similar reasons, because you have to be able to have the resources to sustain those lives. And as they go through these different cars, we live in what I love about good sci-fi and dystopian movies, that gray area where we see these things and we start to question, you know, is humanity really special enough and to warrant survival? Like, if this is how we're going to act, do, are we worth saving? Um, and should we be allowed to survive? If our system is always going to be one of some having an abundance and others having absolutely nothing, or should we not be allowed to survive because we can't support each other? Um, and would we, you know, be better off extinct in a lot of ways is the question they're asking. So it's this high moral question that keeps us going while beginning the whole journey by thinking Curtis is completely wronged and these guys have every right to revolt and work their way to the front of the train. And I love how the film slowly reveals information about Curtis and Gilliam and their past in ways that makes us then question our previous attachment to them. Absolutely. And watching them walk through and get those reveals gives us more things to be empathetic about. And in a lot of ways, there were there were times when I was empathetic towards the enemy, towards these other characters, not because I saw more about them, but because I saw more of the train and more of where they were coming from, literally and figuratively. My empathy while it wasn't as much as it was with Curtis, because I'd spent so much time with him through this narrative, it was interesting to not let it feel one-sided. So it it didn't just feel like a revolt. It felt like a narrative opening up of secrets. So as as Curtis becoming the was the unreliable narrator, being along this journey with him, we were allowed to make those choices ourselves, even though we didn't have any actions that we could take. There were times when I thought to myself, no, don't make that choice. No, no, stay there. And 
I did. I mean, it wasn't a choose your own adventure or anything like that, but I felt participatory in my head as I was watching it. And I think it was partly to do with the intimate nature of the setting being on a train as opposed to being in a city or in a town or in a building. But I think it was also due to the fact that we're getting that slow burn reveal of what the rest of the train is like. I mean, I think when I was doing some research on the graphic novel, I really want to read it, even though it's in French, but I think there's an American translation. I'm sure there is. I think there were in the comic, there's actually like close to a hundred cars or 1100 cars. There's just an abundance of them. And so I don't, you know, it, it makes me wonder what other cars are out there. Well, I know you can also Google and find some graphics that show designs of the train and all of the multitude of cars that may have been ripped from the comics. I can't remember, but I was briefly looking over one and it is fascinating. I mean, when you look at how long the train is, there's a particular shot, which I enjoy, but when the train is looping around a, a track and you see its tail coming around a curve and you can see how long it really, really is. Um, it's pretty amazing. It's really interesting because the design of it is appealing to the eye and it's in, it's interesting to go through car after car after car of unique situation. You know, go to the prison car and then we're going to go to the education car and we're going to go to the rave car and all these different things. But in reality, it also is a little bit unbelievable. I think the, I kept wondering to myself, where do these people live? Like, where are the cars that these people are in? And there's not... A, not a, a defined system where, you know, it's not like a the Orient Express or a travel train where you see people walking back and forth. We never see people traveling. It's like everybody just miraculously is in their place. And maybe that's part of the theme and the point is like the ravers are in their place. They're in the rave train. Like that's where they belong. That's where they stay. You don't need to see them moving to and from. The ravers don't go to the education car and then come back to the rave car. They are the people that do this one thing. And that is all. So yeah. I'm just now realizing maybe that's actually part of the point. I think um, that's I I, th I was thinking that too that there's a sense of imprisonment that when you get on the train maybe that was a stipulation you are who you are forever and you cannot as long as you live you cannot leave your space. Your space is now defined by who you were but it will not change for the length of time that you're on this train. That gives even more weight to the idea of, are we worth saving then? Like if we are locked into only being one thing forever. Yeah. And that's the only way we can survive. Then are we humanity still? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. I don't know that it can be answered. And well, no, I don't, I think that's the, that's what's that's beautiful point, about yeah. it. Yeah. That's actually the point is to consider what what you think, what you would do, which side you would be on, and then to think about what makes you lean toward one side or the other. That's really the self-reflection that I love about these movies. We can learn a lot about ourselves. Or the question is, you know, hinting at like the, the revolts of the seven, I, I forget what it was actually called. Were those people the ones that said, it's better to try to survive with the unknown than to live with the known, knowing that it will never change. And it got me thinking about the story of the Israelites and when they were 
when they were when they were rescued from Egypt, how much they complained in the desert. And I'm convinced my own personal take is that they complained because they didn't know what the outcome was going to be. They, they relied on a promise, but they didn't see it. And they were, they were almost wanting the predictability of slavery because they knew what they were getting as opposed to wandering in a desert day and night and getting what they needed but not necessarily knowing the plan outright, just knowing that they were getting to the promised land at some point. And I feel like there's a group of people on this train or that were on this train that decided to revolt with those kinds of attitudes that realized it's better to run into the chaos than to live in a predictable prison. And I think that's kind of what the Snowpiercer is is doing. What the train represents is that predictable prison that folks from different walks of life live in. So fun fact, you know that it's actually not called the Snowpiercer, by the I way? Just, I just thought about that because I, I remember, like, I call it the Snowpiercer, but it was... It's called the Rattling Art, that's which right. is intentionally biblical, sure. um, as we've both been alluding to. A lot of great dystopian sci-fi is, for good reason. So I like that as well. Also biblical um, is another one of the big themes that is explored in this, and it's through... Curtis, uh, specifically, and it's that of sacrifice, and often connected to it, guilt. In particular, Curtis recaps how Gilliam gave his arm to save Curtis, and he's breaking down and, and telling, I don't remember who he's talking to at this point, um, he's talking about how he could not do the same thing, and how his guilt has, over this, has driven what I think is him to this place that he is kind of on a collision course with eventually finding a way to sacrifice himself to make up for that. And so I'm wondering, do you think that Gilliam's revealed sacrifice from his past, giving his arm to help cull um, the awful acts that they were doing at the time, does that change anything you view about his character, knowing that he was in on creation of these revolts. Um, and did you think that he had any redemption traits about him in the same way that we kind of feel Curtis is being redeemed? Ooh, it's, it's ambiguous because I think that on one hand, had he not sacrificed his arm and, stop the revolt that potentially would have led to what Curtis ended up doing, the population would have balanced itself out. Life would have gone on. But I feel like there's a part of him that saw the humanity in Curtis. And I think that he was sort of in conflict. There are these, there's these couple of quiet moments where I attributed it to him being old and sort of just incapacitated when he and Curtis were talking, but he he comes across, knowing what I know now, he comes across to me as someone who feels like he's in conflict, like he's hiding a secret and he knows that he can't change, but he can try to make the best of the situation as it is. I feel like his arm sacrifice was that way of saying, I am good. I'm doing the right thing, even though I know that ultimately this is what I'm trying to get to, this revolt to cause this ecosystem to become balanced, 
I want people to understand that I'm doing it for their good. And I feel like he's the opposite of Wilford because Wilford lives in isolation. And when, as someone who lives in isolation, he has a right-hand man or woman in this case. He doesn't have the responsibility to take ownership of what happens. Yes, he, he orders people to do stuff, but there's, at least from my indication, he never has stabbed someone or killed someone or made a sacrifice on behalf of someone else. Whereas I think Gilliam lives among those people at the tail section, and I think his living with them allows him to understand what humanity actually is. And so I think he has more conflict than than Wilford does, but I think his conflict comes from a more honest place. Wilford sees things in black and white. Gilliam seems, sees things in gray. And I think that he's living with this duality that both things are right. Now, whether they are, I don't know. But I think he believes that both are right. It's right to sacrifice to show that humanity is valued, but it's also right to maintain this ecosystem. Yeah, I agree. I don't know that I would use the word that it's right to maintain this ecosystem, that it's necessary to maintain this ecosystem. Yeah, that's a better word. And what I find really intriguing about the Curtis Gilliam connection, A, I love stories where a man has a mentor who he truly respects and he is following. And I just, I like the way that it's set up with um, Curtis truly kind of studying under him and being brought up to become the leader that the people need to lead this revolt and to take them to the next place, even, you know, with knowing where it's going to go, it's fun to watch play out. But I think there's a cool arc where the two are coming from different spots and kind of meet in the middle and then go down in opposite ways. And what I mean is Curtis comes off as pretty pure in the beginning of the film. His intentions are absolutely honorable. He just wants to get to the front of the train to stop this oppressive system from existing and free the people. Like, that's all that's on his mind. There is no anger involved. It's not personal at that point for him. He's just purely going through and only doing what needs to be done in order to get further through the train. Like, he's not going above and beyond excessively. Gilliam, obviously we know, is secretly masterminding this whole thing with Wilfred, just pushing them forward, making sure that they get there, but also lose enough people along the way to meet this invisible quota. But there comes a point where Gilliam is about to die, and the thing that kind of redeems him in a way for me, or at least in a moment that I'm saying where they kind of arc here, Gilliam specifically tells Curtis not to let Wilford talk. He says, cut out his tongue. I think there is so much meaning in that moment because I feel like Wilford is reflecting on what he's done. As you said, he's dealing with that conflict. I think he truly loves Curtis as a son at that point. And I think he's telling Curtis, do not let him talk you into stopping what you're doing. Wilford, I think at that point is wanting Curtis to make it to the end of the train and end the system almost like a, as a penance. You know, he, he, at that point, he realizes that what he's done needs to be stopped. And I think it tells us that maybe this time around, that was his goal the whole time, that he believes in Curtis enough as a leader that this is time for the cycle to stop. Around the same time in the film is when Curtis kind of starts to cross over as well. It's that moment where Edgar has died and he is now 
upset on a personal level, and he kills Mason out of cold-blooded revenge, not out of necessity, and almost against necessity, because it would have been better to have her as a hostage, but he murders her because he's mad. And he starts to allow the situation to get the best of him, I think, and push him into a place where he no longer can think in terms of being a leader, but in terms of just angrily getting revenge. And it's tragic because you think of what maybe could have been if Gilliam's, what I believe, plan had played out and Curtis got to the front still kind of pure. Does that all make sense to you? Yeah, it does. I mean, in some ways, and this is because I've been watching a lot of baseball highlights, in some ways it reminds me of, huh? that, pit, of that pitcher that beans a batter. <laughs> oh, yes. As opposed to just letting things go, not letting his anger get to him and just pitching pitching your game. You know, letting your letting your pitches speak for you. And I think when when he kills out of vengeance, when he kills out of anger as opposed to out of necessity, his motivation becomes something completely different. And that purity com- starts dissolving. Whether or not I was rooting for him, I can't really say, but I know that as I was on that journey, I thought I just want to see what happens with him and Wilford. Is he going to kill him or is he not? That's not, I mean, that's the only thing that was going through my mind. Is he going to kill him? Because I feel like that's what he was doing as opposed to starting something like a new kind of revolution or trying to convince him to do something different. And instead, Wilford opens his mouth and starts talking. And then I think that's where he hits his vulnerability, Curtis's vulnerability, because I think he's his most vulnerable when he walks through that door into Wilford's chamber because he's experienced all this stuff. Had he not killed out of vengeance, had he still become pure, I do agree that he would have been more strategic. I think he would have been able to follow through in a way that would have made sense and would have probably satisfied what Gilliam was really after. So instead we get kind of this tainted version of what was expected. It was still a revolt. The end result was still killing a certain amount of the population. But I think in some ways we'll never know what Gilliam's real outcome vision was. Yeah, no, I I agree with you completely. But that was what makes it fun to pretend and imagine what we think it was. I I like you. I kind of want to watch. I want to read the graphic novel and see if there's any more character development to him that we didn't get in the movie. Partially because this film is highly stylized, right? And, And that's a big key part of how the movie is made, is intentionally appealing to us on a visual level, takes us on this really violent journey uh, through the train cars. I'm curious, did anything stick out to you as particularly cool? Did you ooh and ah or go, oh my gosh, that's amazing, like from a set design perspective or any of that kind of reaction? So I think my favorite train car was the aquarium, but I think my favorite set piece was the torch fight. Uh, and everything leading up to that. So you had that long sequence of the axemen trimming the, uh, you know, killing the fish or gutting the fish, and then the big attack, and then that, again, that abrupt stop 
to wish, you know, say happy new year. And then there's that one guy who's dying. Who's like, happy new year. And then Mason comes out and says something and then the lights go out and then just all hell breaks loose. I think that's probably my favorite scene of the entire movie. It's mine too. I'm so glad you said that. It's that tunnel scene. And in there in the water car, um, where the, not aquarium water, but like potable water. Where the, yeah, where the water is stored, the water stores. And a couple things about it. So first of all, I actually Googled, why did they gut the fish? Was that like a, a mo, was that a move to intimidate or just to look really cool? Cause this is a, like from a Korean director who very much may have done that. Come to find out, it's actually a poisonous fish, and they are coating their weapons in poison, which is makes it even more cool when you're watching it happen. And I love it, too, because Mason comes out, and she calls them the optimistic doomed, which is just oh, is great language in the script here. And she tells them, 74% of you will die. Everything from the front is calculated. Like nothing is by chance. And there, and there literally is someone walking through the carnage as it's happening with a clicker counting the deaths because they're, they're very specific about it. It's almost where you start to feel like there's humanity in them because they're not killing needlessly in, in a way either. They're like trying to meet a number, but yeah, the night vision goggles, the, the hatchet kills. It's absolutely awful and brutal. Um, and then when they come raging back at them in night vision with the torches to mess it all up, oh, it's it is so awesome! It's spectacular to watch. It looks great in 4K, by the way, uh, on my TV. <laughs> I gotta tell you, I, it, I had my lights off to watch this because I knew kind of it was a darker film with a bunch of these cool scenes that were gonna be in it, and I wanted to see the the brightness of the snow pop as well, and it oh it went so well. So that's definitely one of my absolute favorite scenes as well. I like the way that in the beginning of the film, Curtis comes up with this idea that bullets no longer exist and that it's the fear of bullets. That's what keep what's keeping people in line. I think it's a key piece of his ability to be a leader, his ability to see and observe things that others are not because they are so wallowing in their despair, but he's able to keep his wits about him and that moment where he proves it is like, is like my, it's like almost like Captain America like to me. He goes right up to the guard, grabs the barrel of his, his machine gun, sticks it on his head and pulls the trigger to prove that they don't have bullets. And I'm like, dude, I'm seriously like, I'm inspired. Like I'm ready to go fight with him. I'm ready to rush. And I think it shows us in that moment, like this is a leader who leads by example. He's willing to put himself on the line. And I love that they have thought it out so clearly because earlier in the film, they talked about like, there's this, I don't even remember what they said, like three to five second window or something that all of those gates are open and they've solved the problem of getting through them quickly by having a cart that they had pre-planned and they run and they push the cart and then they ride on the cart to get through the gates in time because they couldn't run through there fast. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Like the design I think is so well done to keep us engaged when we're just in confined train cars, like the whole movie, like that can get real old and boring really fast, but they managed not to let it get that way. Well, and I think having those different types of train cars that are purposefully there, they don't feel, they don't feel random to me because they represent things. 
the sauna represents something. The toking room represents something. The club represents something. Even um, even Wilford's engine room represents something. And everything kind of leads back to metaphor. So you don't feel like cars are wasted in their design, that they actually have purpose. And when you have that scene open up right before the tunnel, so there's the there's the battle just before the tunnel sequence, and everybody's just standing, like facing off like two rival gangs. You don't know what's going to happen, but I'm thinking, what kind of train car is this? Is this where they keep the bodyguards? Because that's kind of how I felt at that point. I was like, okay, every train car has a purpose. So is this where they, is this like the bodyguard storage closet, storage car? And these guys live here? I don't know. Maybe that's the case. I, I'd like to think so just because that's fun to think about. But I like the fact that we get diversity in the train cars to keep our mind moving forward, to keep us entertained. But it's also done with purpose. It's not done just arbitrarily for the sake of just being cool. It made me want to know what other train cars were out there. And I'm glad that I didn't get a ton of them because then I would have been more distracted with, well, where do we go next? I would have too. I think there was the right amount. And it was definitely something that I was constantly being excited about was what's the next car going to be. I got to say the other scene that really sticks out to me I just love the design and the way that the assassin tries to snipe them from across the the train. Like what I was talking about earlier, how the train loops around itself, essentially it comes around that curve and it shows you how long it is. That's the scene I was referring to where you get to see it's so long that he can be in the front and get a parallel shot off to the back of the train where they're at. It's just, it's so cool conceptually. I mean, it's just one of those moments. It's like almost superhero epic like, and you're just like, wow, that's really, really neat. And uh, that one stuck out to me as well. Well, and it's, it seeing the outside from these different, there were moments that I thought were pretty, pretty fantastic. There's the, there's the moment where Curtis's team is in the, I don't remember which car they're in. It may be in just before they like the axe folks, but they see a bright light. They see outside and they see what's still a frozen earth. And there's this moment where a couple of them are just staring out there. They're putting their arms on the window and they're just watching because they, it's like they haven't seen daylight. It's like being in prison and you haven't gotten to see a blue sky. And so being able to just relish in that moment with them, you could tell how isolated they were where they came from, because it wasn't just that they were confined to that car. They were confined from seeing the outside, from seeing what they were actually traveling through. And so in one sense, some of their senses were being blocked. And I think it affected how they valued what they ate, how they interacted with each other. You know, knowing that those protein bars, what they ended up being made of when they came to realize that, I don't think they would have cared because their quality of life was so low at that point. And I think it was enhanced by the fact that they didn't get windows. They didn't get to see a world outside of the world that they knew. And so that became their world. So I thought those were really great little moments there of being able to be with them as they watched the outside and saw the world go by. Even if it was a frozen wasteland, it was still outside. 
Yeah, totally agree, man. So let's talk about the ending um, because there's a lot of ambiguity here and probably differences of opinion even about what was right, what was wrong, what's going to happen. So Curtis rejects Wilford's offer to take over the train and take his place. And Nam ends up blowing up the train. He's really the anarchist in this whole situation, just wanting to crumble the oppressive system that they've been trapped in. That's his goal. And only these two kids survive. Very different ages, but both are what they call train babies. And that means they've only experienced life on the train. They never knew what it was like out in the world previously. And the first thing they see once the train is blown up in a really, really cool, awesome, you know, action sequence and everybody's dead, except those two, is a polar bear staring them in the face. So my questions for you are this. What do you think is going to happen in the future? And do you think it's what Curtis was hoping for? Do you think that Curtis could have and should have? Or should have just taken over the system and changed it? Do you think you would have been able to do that? Do you think that the result justifies the actions and the choices and the loss of life to get to that point? So all that wrapped up in what did you think about the ending? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that I can answer all those questions. But I will say that the ending for me was satisfying if we're talking about this train being called an arc, then obviously my spiritual metaphors, my biblical metaphors are going to kick into high gear. Early on, I saw Gilliam as the Moses and Curtis as Joshua. So Gilliam was looking to get into the promised land or have this revolt happen so that life could be fair or that it could be balanced in some way. But by the end of the movie, Curtis was Moses And I felt like after the explosion, you had this promised land, these two kids, these train babies, both the last and the first humans starting over, seeing this polar bear who, yes, realistically could have eaten them because polar bears eat, you know, meat and flesh and stuff. But metaphorically speaking, I think it's a beautiful ending because I think the white purity symbolism that I picked up on indicated a starting over the fact that a polar bear could survive even though polar bears live in cold temperatures it wasn't desolate it told me that the planet could be re-inhabited I'd like to believe that there were other survivors on the train that these weren't the only two but that's not what we saw we saw two individuals and so for me I think that what I don't think Curtis would have been able to change the world of the train taking over. There were way too many other people that would have probably revolted against him. I mean, there were a large number of folks that he battled on the way up there. And I don't think that that would have gone away. So just like the back of the train did what it did to get to the front of the train and accomplish its mission, that would have, cyclically happened over again at some point because his values and what he saw would have been challenged at some point life goes on and as long as the train's moving as long as people continue to be born and people continue to die we start getting into 
that problem that doesn't go away, which is how do you balance the ecosystem? To me, I think he knew the train had to stop. Life had to start over so that humanity could make its own choice on how it was to populate and live and see itself. I sort of agree with you for okay. the most part. Um, I think it's definitely ambiguous because you know we're left without knowing, which is something I enjoy a lot in movies like this. If you've given me a good enough story to lead up to it, I like you not closing the deal and letting me hang on different possibilities. For me, the realistic part of my brain definitely has trouble imagining that these two children who've never stepped foot outside of a metal moving vehicle are now standing in snow in the wreckage of an incredibly ginormous explosion event, and that this gigantic bear, who probably hasn't eaten meat in forever, is going to just stare at him and go on his merry way. So there's a part of me that sees this as a very despair-like, um, depressing ending, where everything works out almost to the point of humanity being able to save itself, and ultimately the world still is going to eat them, because that's just the way it goes. And there is no hope. There is no happiness. It's just going to always end in despair. There's the amazing reading that you have, I love, of course, which is much more hopeful, which is a belief that these two will be able to Adam and Eve their way to repopulating the planet um, now that it is habitable again, and hopefully that will lead to a better place. I think the kicker there is that because it's hopeful, it's not letting you you have to think about the fact that ultimately it's going to be the cyclical thing again that as long as we are humans as long as we have free will to make choices there are going to become people that will be in the front of the train and people that will be in the back of the train there are going to be there will never be 100 percent true equality well outside of you know faith-based <laughs> um eternal situations at least on this planet, that's just not something that's ever happened. We can look at thousands of years of history and see that that's not going to happen. So would they repopulate the Earth? Maybe. Is it going to end up in a situation that could just lead us to another train? Absolutely. I also don't think Curtis could have actually completed the plan that I believe he and Gilliam ultimately both wanted, which was for him to take over and be the leader and to change the system. I think that even if he did, the train would have ultimately led to failure because of the overpopulation and the lack of control and the lack of cut controlling those resources in the way that was being done previously. So it's fascinating to think about. I mean, it's, it's almost like a whole movie of humanity fighting against extinction in that with their last breath, when in reality, like the moment that that stuff went off in the sky we were doomed and it's all just a matter of how we're going to get there. Right. And I like that we can see it both ways. We could see it optimistically and pessimistically because the fact is, as our friend Ian Malcolm would say, life finds a way to me. I think this is the new earth. If I'm thinking biblically, this is the new earth. This is where everything starts over 
these train babies know nothing about the world in which these folks on the train 17 years ago came from. Will corruption seep in? Maybe. I don't think that's necessarily being explored here, and I don't think it's meant to be explored here, but I'd like to believe that with that kind of white metaphor, that pure metaphor, that there's there's more hope than there is cynicism. And when you have it coming from two children, two younger people, I think that further enhances the fact that the world could be better this time around because you have the last people also representing the first people, this really interesting duality as we end the movie. I really like that. I, I mean, I definitely, I was saying all that just to go through the fun, different view, viewings that you can have from it. But ultimately I personally like to take the hopeful approach as well. I like your idea of the new earth. I love the motif of the whiteness and the purity of that. And the idea that we've essentially come full circle in destroying the world by trying to even trying to protect it. And it has reset things and given us this new chance because the world's going to thaw out and we have a new opportunity to steward it. These new people that are going to come and not know what's been before and perhaps they'll do better. And all we can do is hope that they will. Um, Eddie, you can take away from it that hopefully the children, whatever the quote unquote next generation is, will be able to do better than we've done so far. So yeah, it's, it's really great. Uh, it's a lot of fun to consider it's action packed. I love the way it goes down with Curtis fighting against it. Um, there's a great moment, of course, with him sticking his arm in the train car. I don't even think we got really to that when we were talking about sacrifices, but the fact that Curtis did not sacrifice his arm when Gilliam did way back when he gets to bring that full circle, uh, by sticking his arm in the engine to stop it in order to save the child. So essentially he's doing the same thing. He's saving people by taking his arm out of the equation again. I really liked that for him. Uh, kind of helped him achieve that redemption that he was seeking. And so I'd like to think that he died at peace, um, feeling that he'd helped at least in some way. But yeah, man, if you want to, you want to get to uh, connecting points then? Sounds great to me. Well, my connecting point is the education car. And, I, and this is kind of a weird connecting point. I've been like off in left field recently with mine, so I figure why not just keep it going. So the education car in particular is fascinating to me because it paints this picture of a very cult-like learning environment where kids are being brainwashed into essentially worshiping Wilford as a savior. It also really spoke to me as a picture of how powerful education can be. Those who are writing the curriculum are basically writing the new history of the world that will eventually be passed on through these kids over generations. It's really terrifying to think that the actual history of the world could be so lost and twisted by these few people left who had so much control, bending it to fit the narrative of themselves as the heroes, despite their controversial at best and evil at worst actions. And it had me thinking, you know, does this happen in real life? Well, sure it does. There are examples all over the place of schools who've taken key events out of history books um, or taught in a way that removes context and alters how kids perceive things, especially 
with regards to race. I've been reading a book um, called Stamped from the Beginning, The History of Racist Ideas in America. And I think that's why this hit me so hard because I've been learning about how we didn't just become a nation of slavery, um, that this goes so far back and it took a lot of lies to people in Britain and people in Europe from explorers who went and depicted Africans in a way that forever altered how the rest of the world would view black people. And look at what it has done to our world. So I saw that happening in this train car, like right there in this little microcosm of, of the train world. So yes, impressionable young and how they were being managed and brought up in this train ecosystem was really fascinating, but also super scary to me. And so that's why it was my connecting point. Also, Allison Pill. From, yes, I love seeing her. Yes, from one of our favorite, you know, Sorkin shows, Newsroom. It was great to see her. Yeah, when playing. Maggie pulled out that uh, Uzi there, that was a little bit scary. That was a little scary. I was I, like, I, I what? I will not see her any differently now <laughs> in any other way. <laughs> and that's a great scene. It, it's one of my favorites. I think it definitely contrasts color-wise with the other cars in a, in a very distinct way. And it reminded me a lot of a documentary that I – I watched uh, maybe about a year ago that explored the North Korean propaganda and how it starts early with the kids and how they're just constantly repeating songs and repeating song lyrics and all that repetition and how that plays out here. It's just another, you know, more symbolism that we can just ogle over. For me, I can only sum up my connecting point in a few words, and that's babies taste best. My mouth dropped open when I heard that line. And you're laughing because I know. I sent you a text. <laughs> it's like, is that the zinger? <laughs> that the that's the one. That's the zinger. I'm glad I picked up on that. <laughs> I was like, where's the zinger? Oh, that's probably it right there. So I, I'm, I'm watching this scene with Chris Evans. And if there was ever a moment where you needed to realize that Chris Evans is a great actor, if you didn't already know by now, this is the scene that I think should win him major awards. And this monologue that he gives, it makes me cringe. It makes me sad. It makes me disgusted and angry all at the same time. And yet, because of the journey that we've been on with him, I have nothing but sympathy. It's so shocking to hear him say, you know what I hate about myself? I know what people taste like. I know that babies taste best. And in a horror movie, in a movie like The Thing or something from the mind of John Carpenter, that line could be delivered in such a kind of Chianti kind of tone where it's just sadistic, but it comes right before he just breaks down and starts crying. And he goes on to talk about how his relationship with Edgar came to be, how he was one of the men with guns who killed his mother and was going to actually eat him as a baby. Again, disgusting stuff, but I'm feeling for this guy. And I'm like, what's happening to me? <laughs> I'm like, well, you just hung out with him for close to two hours. That's what's happened. But that whole sequence brought me the closest to Curtis as a character. And in that moment, I understood deeply why he was so motivated to do what he was doing. 
It made every sacrifice, every life lost, worth it to see the end of what the train created in this culture known as the tail section. As I mentioned before, he reminds me a lot of Moses by the end of the film. One who, without asking to, leads his people through the desert and gets close to the promised land but actually doesn't enter it. To me, that's not tragic. To me, his role was complete, and I think he knew that he wasn't going to survive to see the future, but that he needed to make sure it had a chance to be something more than what it was shaping up to be. Man, absolutely. Uh, 100% right, and I've been waiting all podcasts to hear your reaction to that. It it is, it hits you. Like, the first time that you hear it, and you have no idea it's coming, like, everybody that's seen Snowpiercer felt that similar reaction. It's one of the really cool things about movie experiences is when something is that uniquely powerful that we all have that moment collectively and can point to it together without even saying anything you ask somebody about Snowpiercer and they're gonna that's gonna come up they're gonna be like oh yeah that moment and it's it's brilliant dialogue like just babies taste best like and your brain does the rest of the work, right? And right. you and you're you're processing, and you love this guy, and now you don't know what to think, and it's so conflicting. Um, it's really, really, really good stuff. Um, I'm really glad you enjoyed the movie and liked it so much. This has been awesome, and I think it, I've had a lot of fun with this conversation. So thank you, listeners, for picking this one. And that does it for this episode of Feeling Film. Thanks again to our donors for picking this one. And just a reminder, as we said before, if you want to be a part of that voting each month and get access to fun bonus content, check out patreon.com slash feelingfilm for more info. Coming up in just three days' time, we stare down Thanos and the future of the MCU with Avengers Endgame. It's on the horizon, and we will be here first thing Monday morning with our thoughts and reactions, so be sure to tune in. Aaron, man, thanks for a great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.